Well, let's go ahead and get started. It's good to be able to be uh, in, in front of you all here in this capacity today. Um, I think most of you know who I am. I wanted to start with this nice little collect. Uh, on page 63 in the Catechism, there's a little historic prayer for the church. I thought that might be a nice way to start our time together. Let's pray. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, that wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know the things which were cast that the things which are cast down are being raised up, and things which are grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made. Your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You might keep your finger around in that area. That's kind of the section here. So as we kind of working through the catechism in this confirmation slash catechesis um, time, uh, uh, last week we had Dr. Keith Johnson with us who was speaking a bit about the, the Holy, uh, Holy Spirit clause or section in the creed, the sort of structure of the catechism follows the structure of the Apostles' Creed, and I was focusing in on the Holy Spirit and especially the Holy Catholic Church. We come today to think about the sacraments, and, and in many ways that kind of flows from this thinking about the Holy Spirit and thinking about the church because the sacraments take place in the context of the church and by the empowerment and, and, and the flow and the ministry of the, uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, next week, we kind of uh, shifted the schedule around a little bit to focus in on the cross and the resurrection, as that is a particularly appropriate thing to focus in on on Palm Sunday and in preparation for, for Holy Week. And so uh, Dr. James Gordon's going to be back with us uh, next week to be talking about that on the, on the 10th. Um, but today we're talking about um, uh, sacraments and sacramental theology. And some of you know I'm a, I'm a systematic theologian, so I like thinking about theology. And one of the things I love thinking about with respect to theology is the, uh, the, the intersection point of how our like, big thoughts about God, our abstract thoughts about God, and these, these grand ideas about the Trinity and the hypostatic union, how all these, these big ideas intersect with our own personal lives or our communal lives, intersect with us in very practical ways. And in a sense, I think that sacramental theology is like an even more uh, 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 highlighted nexus point where we have these big ideas about God intersecting with these very uh, regular things that we do in, in a sense. You know, every week we come here to, to, to this building, many of us, for to receive bread and wine and participate in the sacrament of, of Holy Eucharist. And, and when we do baptisms, we have a very ordinary thing, you know, water that we use so often in our daily lives, of course, drinking water, taking showers, water in the garden, etc., uh, cleaning water out of your basement if that happens sometimes, uh, or what have you. But, that, but yet this is like infused with these grand ideas about the death and resurrection of Christ and how we are incorporated into that into that uh, that mystery. So when we think about sacramental theology, we're thinking about God's interaction with us and intersection with us in these very real, very uh, maybe normal even kinds of experiences. And uh, I, I kind of like to think about the sacraments in, in a sort of simple way as as ways of God coming to us ways of God coming to us. And God comes to us in, in lots of ways. I think that our God is a very generous God. God's not limited to just sacraments, but rather God comes to us in, in so many ways, most profoundly in, in the incarnation, coming to us to be one of us in the person of Jesus Christ. But God comes to us in our experience of nature and our experience of one another. He comes to us uh, specifically in, in the word, the word heard, read, and, and preached, and then also in, in uh, the sacraments that we celebrate on a regular basis. God comes to us through these, uh, through these sacraments, through these mysteries. So the word sacraments, an ancient sort of Latin word, comes basically from a word meaning mystery. Um, but not mystery like in the, you know, the mystery novel sort of sense. Mystery in like the, the wonder, kind of like the wow sort of sense. So these, these sacraments are maybe specific, uh, specifically dramatic or specifically wonderful, like wonder-inducing kinds of ways that God comes to us. Not to diminish the, the wonder that can 
that can occur when we're in a quiet prayer time or that can occur when we're walking in nature or that can occur uh, from the encouraging word of a friend. But these, uh, these specific practices have been uh, uh, discerned by the church to be uh, instances of a, of a mysterious, wonderful coming to us by, by God. Um, and still framing a, a little bit here, when we think about, when I think about an Anglican approach to sacramental theology, um, you maybe heard the, the description of Anglicanism as a via media, a, a middle way, Latin there for, for middle way. Uh, this is a term that came out in the, in the 16th century. And uh, it's not always clear what the middle way was that people are trying to articulate when they describe Anglicanism as a middle way. It seemed as though in the 16th century, it was more this middle way between Lutheranism and like reformed Presbyterianism. Um, sometimes we describe Anglicanism as a middle way between Roman Catholicism and you know, evangelicalism or Protestantism or, or what have you. And uh, there's lots of different ways of characterizing Anglicanism as a, as a middle way. When it comes to our sacramental theology, I, I kind of like to see Anglicanism as more of like a middle way with like three other axes around it. Uh, a Roman Catholic axis, a, uh, uh, an Eastern Orthodox axis, and then a Protestant uh, axis. And of course the Protestant uh, area itself is rather diverse, all the way from Lutheran to Baptist and non-denominational and Pentecostal. But I sort of see Anglicanism as a bit there in, in that middle of these sort of like three axes. I probably need some kind of chart or something like that. Uh, so, so, uh, so when I think about Anglican sacramental theology, I think that it at times can, can pull then from all these various axis points to give us perhaps like a, a richer and a fuller maybe perspective on the manner in which we think about, um, think about our, uh, uh, the ways in which God, uh, God, com God comes to us. Um, so in how, do the, how we kind of characterize these three regions with Anglicanism in the middle. Um, I don't mean to be pejorative, but sometimes you look in the Roman Catholic sacramental system, and it, and it seems like there's almost kind of like a, kind of a sacramental economy going on there. Uh, you kind of like get these like merit and you can sort of like uh, increase that merit. There's like a deposit of the saints that's out there that we kind of like draw down from or, or what have you. And there's almost kind of like a, a financial sort of feel to a Roman Catholic perspective on, uh, on the sacraments. You, know, you got to do this and then you get this. So if you don't do this, you're going to get this in the afterlife or not get that in the afterlife. And it almost sometimes feels a little bit transactional. Um, a, a, a broadly Protestant, maybe kind of call this more of a Baptistic or you know, a broadly evangelical approach to, to the sacraments, uh, uh, seems to be more like what I would kind of think of as like a, a cognitive reminder. Where's kind of the action of the sacraments going on? Well, it's mostly in our own perspective. It's, it's, it's in our head. You know, the, the, the bread and the wine serve as reminders of God's presence with you. The, the, the water of baptism serves as a reminder of um, the salvation that God uh, has wrought for us in, in our lives. Um, but on the, on, the, on the Protestant view, there's not a whole lot going on as an instrumental sort of form or uh, with the objects themselves. Rather, the, the change and the shift is what's going on in our perspective. Our, it's in the head. On the Orthodox um, conception of sacramentology, um, there's a much broader and uh, opening up of what the sacraments are. And, and it almost sort of like it comes to the point of where it seems like everything is, is sacramental. The whole world is a, is a sacrament of God's presence with us. And um, uh, it, there's a, well, an old story. Who knows if it's true or not? But you know, when the Reformation was happening, there was these disputes between the Protestants and the Catholics about how many sacraments there were. And the Roman Catholics have seven in their sacramental system, which developed through the medieval period. And, uh, and Protestants, uh, focusing a bit more on the explicit words of the gospel, uh, said that there are two sacraments, uh, the Lord's Supper and, um, and baptism. And so, you know, big debate over this numbers. And so allegedly they asked some Orthodox bishops like out in Greece, well, how many sacraments are there? You know, are there two or are there seven? And the Orthodox were like, well, that, that's two sounds way too few, and seven sounds way too few, so we'll just go with the bigger number. But really, like, there's a whole lot more than, than, than that, uh, that the idea that, that everything has this like, uh, charge of God's presence. Um, where I see Anglicanism is somewhere in the middle between those kinds of things there as well. And you can even see that reflected here in our, uh, in our description of, of sacraments on page um, 50, uh, 56, question 123, 123, what sacraments were ordained by Christ? 
Well, there are two sacraments ordained by Christ that are generally necessary to salvation. Okay, what about those other sacraments, number 124? Other rites and institutions commonly called sacraments include, and then these other five that we see within the kind of Roman Catholic system. Sometimes Anglicans talk about there being two, um, maybe they even kind of describe it that way in here, two sacraments of the gospel and five sacraments of the church. That is, there are two sacraments specifically ordained by Christ, baptism and the Lord's Supper, but then five other practices that were not explicitly ordained by Christ, but the church has discerned in their reading of scripture and reflecting theologically on, on Christ's teaching that these are other significant ways of thinking about how God, how God comes to us. This even comes up in, in the uh, 39 articles here. I guess, uh, so, uh, so 39 articles, uh, this, if you want to turn to page 781 in, in the red book here. 39 articles uh, originated in the, in the 16th century as a, uh, something of a statement of faith. Uh, maybe I've told this joke too. In the 16th century, as everyone's figuring out what it means to be Protestant, in the Lutherans and the Presbyterians wrote catechisms, Anglicans wrote a liturgy, which that's a little bit pejorative, because we, we, we wrote statements of faith too, but not exactly in the same level of specificity and not functioning with the same level of authority as say like the Augsburg Confession does for Lutherans or the Westminster uh, uh, Catechism and whatnot uh, serves for the Presbyterians, that's later on in the 17th century. So the 39 articles were like uh, uh, kind of key talking points, you might say, about the Anglican perspective on certain issues that were significant at the time it's not exhaustive, and it's not even completely like authoritatively binding, but it does give us um, a, a, a window into the Anglican perspective on these kinds of things. So the bottom of page 781 of the sacraments, you can see right here, there are, there are two sacraments ordained of Christ our Lord in the gospel, that is to say, baptism and the supper of the Lord, and those five commonly called sacraments, confirmation, penance, orders, matrimony, auction, etc., are not to be counted as sacraments of the gospel, but, you go on there, but uh, they are, they're not sacraments of the gospel, but then as we talk about later on, sacraments of, of, of the church. So even that seems like a little bit of like a, a middle way there for Anglicanism. Well, it's not, you know, maybe it's two privileged sacraments with five lesser sacraments, so, but it's not, you know, only two, but it's not a full seven or kind of like everything. There's sort of a mediating position that we see in the Anglican perspective on sacramental theology. All right, now what is a sacrament, though? We're using that, that, that phrase there. Well, the catechism gives us this on page 55. The bottom of page 55, we get this rather canonical definition of sacrament, which sort of or owes its origin to Augustine. A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. An outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. Now what's what's going on? What's going on there? We can see something like that maybe most clearly in like the Lord's Supper, where we have outward and visible signs like bread and wine. You know, you can see those; they're external, they're objects in the world, or the water of baptism, which we you know do our baptisms over there. These are outward and visible signs, but they're they're signs of what? They're, they're signs of an inward and spiritual grace. Inward here meaning something on this sort of like spiritual level, something on the, on the divine level. We'll talk a bit more about these, about these specifics here. But we can even ask that question about, well, what is grace? If it's an inward and spiritual grace, what in fact is that? Well, the Catechism gives us a little bit of an answer to that question. Flip back one page to page 53. Up at the top, what's grace? Grace is God's undeserved gift of his love, mercy, and help which he freely offers to us, who because of our sin deserve only condemnation. We think about grace as something that we don't deserve. You know, it's not a, it's not a wage. It's not something that we're owed. It's not like a paycheck. Rather, it's a, it's a gift. It's an overflow and an abundance that God gives to us. But I like to think of grace here, and the catechism characterizes this a bit well. Um, it's God's undeserved gift of his love, mercy, and help. And I sort of think theologically about these big abstract thoughts, and I think, well, where, where does God's love, mercy, and help come from? I think they just come from God himself. And so God's grace, I think, is, is, is nothing else than just 
God's own activity towards us, God's own being God's self towards us, God's own presence towards us. And that is loving, and that, that feels merciful, and I think that can feel empowering as well. That's where the power of the Holy Spirit, I think we kind of get this sense that the Spirit is an empowering part of God. Well, this is the, the help here that the Catechism is, is referring to. So when I think about the inward and spiritual grace that's being given to us by God, I like to think of that as none other than God himself. God comes to us. God reaches out to us. God gives God's self to us through these various tangible means for particular ways, particular kinds of mercy, particular kinds of help, particular kinds of encouragement that each of the sacraments is sort of keyed up to and aligned with. And that's how these, and, and, and discerning a bit what the relationship is between the outward invisible sign and whatever aspect of God's mercy, love, help is, is part of kind of what we try to do when we think about sacramental theology. So sacraments are a, they're a, a, a means of grace, a, an instrument of grace, a, a conduit perhaps by which we receive God's grace, which is God's presence with us and in our, and in our lives. A sacrament's an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace, and God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. Now, if you might see there in that, that kind of a two-pronged approach there, you have a little bit of a... Um, maybe you call it kind of mystical or spiritual side, but also kind of like maybe irrational cognitive side. And here's where maybe that one aspect of the Via Medea plays out as well. These sacraments are, the sign is a means by which we receive that grace. And that's where we can maybe kind of think of this, know, maybe it's imaginative or whatnot, but a spiritual conduit by which we receive this divinely infused power. But also, as a tangible assurance that we do in fact receive it. Where does the assurance happen? Well, it's a cognitive thing, that's a, that's a felt sort of a thing. That's where something's kind of happening in us, on us, which I think is that Protestant emphasis on the, maybe call it mental or, or cognitive aspects of, of the sacraments. And those need not be opposed to one another. And in fact, as the Catechism puts it, they're not opposed to one another. We can both be receiving kind of from the outside this like, you know, empowerment by God through the sacraments. And then also they can serve as a, as a, as a point of reminder to us. You know, we, we have the baptismal the font over there, the holy water stoop, and that's not a sacrament itself. Just having holy water out there, it's kind of what we call a sacramental or something related to the sacrament. But every time you see that water and every time you can touch it and cross yourself, that's it, a reminder. That's a reminder, a tangible assurance of what happened to you at baptism, whether that was many years ago or, 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 or not. We're reminded through these, these means of God's assurances uh, towards us that we are in his favor, that we are receiving his grace, and that we belong to him. Then again, just kind of thinking about framing here before we get into some of the specific sacraments. Question 22, how should you receive the sacraments? I should receive the sacraments by faith in Christ with repentance and thanksgiving. Faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments and obedience to Christ is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to bear fruit in my life. And yet, and yet, when we think about faith, I think we ought not thinking about that as something we kind of like, you know, work really hard at, like muster up. Like I've just got to kind of like work at believing and believing and believing. And then, you know, maybe finally things will kind of like, like break through to us. Rather, when I think about faith, I think about the, um, the simple openness that we see in some of our, our heroes in the faith. I, I was reflecting a couple of weeks ago how we had the reading, um, uh, I can't remember if it was the second or third Sunday of, of Lent, the reading of the burning bush with Moses, and I was preaching on that, and I was thinking about Moses' posture there as simply being one of openness to God. All he did was say, here I am. He wasn't even out there in the wilderness searching and, and reaching and striving after God. All, really, all he was is when he saw, caught a glimpse of God's presence, he just opened himself and said, here I am. And, 
then likewise, uh, Mary at the, the Feast of the Annunciation, which we, we commemorated as well on March 20, 25th, same kind of posture. Here she's confronted with God. God has come out to her through, through the angel and told her this great thing, and, and even, if, even said, you know, blessed are you, full of grace, hail Mary, full of grace. And what's her response to God? Same thing, here I am. I think these are, these are archetype pictures of what our faith can be. It doesn't take a ton of effort. It simply takes a, a turning, a, a recognizing, and a saying, here I am. And so when we're offered the sacraments, whether it's baptism or confirmation or the Lord's Supper, how are we to receive these? Simply by opening ourselves and saying, here I am. There's a line that I uh, often say that we haven't been saying here in Lent, but when I offer the, the gifts from the altar there, uh, take these terms that were, uh, this phrase that was originated in the 16th century in Cranmer's um, liturgies. Uh, but I say, the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. I think those same kind of themes are exemplified right there. Feed on him in your hearts by faith. Just open up and receive the grace, the help, the love, the mercy that God is offering to you. And if you do so, do so by thanksgiving as well, in gratitude. What, what else can we do, right? When, when God is coming to us and giving us mercy and help and love, what else can we do but be open to receiving that and, and saying thank you and saying I'm grateful and trying to cultivate a heart that is easily able to receive these things. So that's maybe a bit of, of, of framing here and thinking about an, an approach to these sacraments, approach to the ways in which God, um, God comes to us. Um, what I want to do then is just kind of walk through, kind of a hi highlight a few things on these, uh, on these seven sacraments or five, two sacraments and five other ones or whatever. I think I tend to say seven just because it's probably like, I don't know, force of habit or what have you. So the first sacrament that we all participate in as, as Christians is the sacrament of baptism. Uh, this is the, the, the first moment. This is like the, the entrance into the covenant community. The community of all Christians is through our baptism. All other, all other sacraments and participation in sacraments flow from and, and come after our participation in this, this entrance rite of, of, um, of baptism. Question 26, what's the outward and visible sign in baptism? The outward and visible sign is water, in which candidates are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now that's a pretty simple outward sign there. You only need one object, water. Uh, you know, bread's kind of complicated. You gotta get flour and water, you gotta bake it, blah, blah, blah. You know, water is just water. Like you, just, you just grab some water there and you can have the outward and visible sign. But it's an outward and visible sign with the pouring on of water or the sprinkling on of water on the head of the individual in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and at, that, at that moment, at that, at that instance there, the person who's been baptized has been joined to all baptized Christians across the globe and across time, joined in the, um, this, this ceremony that we, that we participate in. Um, the Anglican perspective is that uh, there's different means by which you can do putting water on someone, to be generic. You can you know, sprinkle it on them, you can pour it on their head, you can dip them completely, fully immerse them, that sort of thing. Um, as, a, as a former Baptist, I think full immersion baptism is kind of cool. You know, if you're going like, to do it, you might as well go all the way. Uh, we don't have a, a baptismal font here, and I think it's completely, uh, that is a, a, a baptismal like, you know, jacuzzi like you see in a Baptist um, church. Um, maybe there was one. Was that is anyone, was that was one up there? Is that right? Yeah, that, that was the, my, my Baptist church had a jacuzzi in it, and uh, that's where, where I was um, where I was baptized. Um, and the, I think there's something kind of phenomenologically significant about that. You know, like there, there's something kind of cool, but but it's not like theologically required or or theologically any better to be fully immersed than to be sprinkled on or or, or what have you. So. Uh, the, the simple sprinkling is an ancient tradition that, uh, that still symbolizes, still serves as an outward and visible sign 
of the inward and spiritual reality or spiritual grace that's that's going on here. Um, when we have a baby of our, or a child of some age, I try to pour a fair amount of water on them just to give that uh, that appeal. Um, so we did. I baptized the Kemp kids back in in the in November. Uh, what have you? I, I don't know if it was because this care they were a little bit you know larger children. You know they're not large children. They were babies. You know so they were kind of standing up there. And I, you know I was getting water like all over the place. I had a prayer, prayer book that was like completely saturated with water and everything. And, um, regardless of the amount of water you use, that is the outward and visible sign. Water on the body in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that then is the name by which we are joined up with and, and signified with. That's the name that we, that we stand under. We stand under the name of the Trinity. Um, you know, when we do the, the, um, uh, the entrance right here, typically not here in Lent, we, we say, um, uh, let's see, what do we say exactly? Something about the kingdom of God. Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and blessed be his kingdom now and forever. That, that blessing there, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I, I, say, I see that as a, as a reminder to us that we're kind of reaffirming the fact that we stand under the name of, of Christ. We stand under the name of Christ, who is God, who is then, of course, joined to the Father and to the Holy Spirit. So anytime we are invoking the triune name, anytime we're crossing ourselves in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we're demonstrating and showing forth that this is the name that we stand under. This is who we belong to. This is our God. You know, as, as God says when he makes the covenant with Israel, I will be your God and you will be my people. And we're saying, yeah, that's, that's our God. That's the one, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is our God, the one who we are aligned with and the one who we stand under. And so in baptism, we, we, we show that forth there by invoking the triune name. Of course, it's also uh, following the, the, uh, uh, the great commission that Christ instituted or uh, gave to his disciples in Matthew 28 to go into all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we, we follow that commandment there, but that's the rationale, I think, about why that commandment is given to us by, um, by Christ. Outward, outward and visible sign, the washing of the water, the water on the body, Inward and spiritual grace, what's given to us in baptism on this spiritual plane, we might say. As the Catechism says here, the inward and spiritual grace is death to sin and new birth to righteousness. Through union with Christ in his death and resurrection, I'm born a sinner by nature, separated from God, but in baptism through faith in Christ and the gift of the Holy Spirit, I'm made a member of Christ's body and adopted as God's child and heir. And Romans 6 gives us a lot of that a sort of theology, and I think that's pretty standard for our Easter vigil service to read Romans 6. Um, and this is where Paul gives us these great lines of talking about being buried with a death like Christ, so too will be raised in a resurrection like his. So because Christ died, because Christ was buried and descended to the dead, um, and yet that was not the end, that was, that was the, he in that moment defeated death as well and then was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit to be resurrected. Our baptism is paralleling that or showing that forth. We too are buried in a sense. Uh, we are buried by the waters of baptism as Paul puts it, but then we come up out of the waters and are raised as though Christ, as, as Christ came up out of the tomb. And so as he was raised to, to, to new life, so too are we raised to new life. And this is the inward and spiritual reality that baptism is trying to, is conveying and, and showing forth for us. And so baptism shows and proclaims not only the death of Christ, but his resurrection and proclaims our uh, death to death, that death no longer has dominion over us, as Paul says elsewhere, but rather we are ourselves raised to new life in Christ. So that our, our bodily death, when one day our, our bodies die and corrupt and our souls are separated from our bodies, that's not the end for us. Rather, it's just a step along the way towards the new life that comes when Christ makes all things new, which we still wait and that's anticipation for. Uh, just make a comment here about the baptism of infants, infants, because that also kind of puts us in this sort of like nexus point in the middle there, right? So uh, depending upon your Protestant, Lutheran, Presbyterians, Methodists do baptize infants, but not all do. Baptists, most non-denominational churches, Pentecostal churches don't baptize infants, but of course Orthodox, Orthodox and Roman Catholic do uh, as well. Um, what do we tend to think about that? There's some different motivations for why um, infant baptism was practiced in these various areas, um, or these various traditions. 
Um, our rationale here, at least as given in the catechism, tends to follow a bit more of what we might think of as a reformed kind of understanding. That is, baptism, um, uh, uh, baptism uh, mirrors or parallels or uh, is the completion of what circumcision was under the Old Covenant. So as circumcision in the Old Covenant was for the people of Israel, the entrance into the covenant community, um, so too then is baptism for us in the New Covenant the sign by which we show we are entered into the, to the New Covenant. Um, but likewise then, as in the Old Covenant, there was no... Uh, no, there was no age requirement. Well, I guess it was eight days, but you know, basically no age requirement. You know, as soon as a child was born, a male child was born, they would be circumcised in, in about a week later, and to show forth they were, they're a member of the community. Um, so too, then, do those under the new covenant in this perspective think that there's no time limit or, or time requirement. As soon as you're born, you're able to be baptized and joined into the covenant community of Christ's church, as, um, as page 57 um, puts it. Those who in faith and repentance present infants to be baptized vow to raise them in the knowledge and fear of the Lord with the expectation that they will one day profess full Christian faith as their own. And I think that last line right there, with the expectation that they will one day profess full Christian faith as their own, um, uh, well, for one, ties in with confirmation, um, but two, ties in with how we might distinguish the Anglican perspective on infant baptism from like a, a Roman Catholic perspective. So as, as my understanding Roman Catholic perspective is, the baptism is sort of like, that's it, like you're, you're, you're in. There's almost kind of like a, um, again, kind of a mechanistic perspective on um, what goes on there. Um, for the, the Protestant, we have this, uh, the Protestants have had the emphasis on making a public profession of faith. That's kind of when I was raised Baptist. That's what I had to do when I was nine in order to be baptized was to publicly profess that I was a Christian and then I would be baptized. This middle way perspective says that the, the, the baptism of an infant is sort of like a, a promissory note or a, a down payment or what have you on what the child needs to end up doing for themselves. We, the community, kind of stand in for the child and say, yeah, this, this child here, this baby, is a member of the covenant community, but eventually they're going to kind of need to own that for themselves and make that, and make that public profession. For us, then, confirmation is that right, that, that R-I-T, that sacrament by which we do that public profession. And that's why, for in many traditions, why the teenage years or early teenage years is when we, uh, we have confirmation because a child has then grown to the point of where they can think about things, they can understand things, they can make a, um, let's see here, what's the phrase there? They can have a knowledge and fear of the Lord so they can profess full Christian faith uh, as their own uh, if, if they so choose. And therefore, kind of cash in that down payment or, or, or cash in that promissory note that serves as, a, as their, um, uh, what the covenant community has done for them that they can't do um, on their own. Uh, I'll pause there and ask questions on like baptism and then move to the Lord's Supper and then the other few as well. And while I pause, I'm going to get a drink of water so you can all think about your question. Hmm? Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's an ancient tradition um, by which, uh, at least for me, it's kind of like a bodily representation of something that's going on internally in my head. You know, I can sort of like think of myself like, I belong to God. And like, I can just like do that. But there's something a little bit more know, phenomenologically significant when I'm like, the, the cross is like, I'm marked with the cross. And sometimes I even sort of like imagine that I've got like a marker or something like that. I'm like drawing a cross on my body. And it's like, here it is, you know, like this is, this is who I, this is who I'm under, the sign that I'm, that I'm under. Um, and uh, this is what I'm sort of portraying to the world that I am marked. Oh, this, we say this in baptism, you're marked as Christ's own forever. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked as Christ's own forever. Now, maybe there are other ways, you, there's lots of ways you can do that, right? You can wear a little cross, you can have a t-shirt that says, I belong to Jesus, or WWJD bracelet, or whatever. You can do all those kinds of things, whatever. But this is kind of in the long-standing tradition by which, you know, we, we show ourselves to be belonging uh, to, uh, to God. Here's my kind of orthodox uh, leaning theology, too. Um, when you go to an orthodox church, at least when I go to an orthodox church, 
seemed like people are crossing themselves like all the time, like at random moments or what have you. And so I asked an Orthodox a theologian one time, like, was there any kind of like in your liturgy, are there a special requirement? Like, what time do you do that? And he was like, you know, it's kind of like whenever you're feeling it. It's like, okay, that's cool. So, you know, sometimes you can use cross, you're just kind of feeling holy, you're just feeling kind of like a little devout or something like that. It's a bodily way of, of, of saying that. It's a bodily way of kind of communicating that, communicating that sort of thing. There are specific times in the liturgy where it maybe makes sense to do that a bit more. Like, for instance, the invocation of the divine name, you know, when we, we do that. The entrance, uh, when we start the service off, blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, like, we're starting this thing off, and I'm showing everybody that I, you know, I belong to Christ. Um, sometimes when we, like, receive a blessing, we do that as well. So if, you know, if you, if you get a blessing from, well, from, from me, from the altar, and I make the sign of the cross, that's an appropriate time as well to receive that. Um, before receiving communion is, you know, and after receiving communion is an appropriate time there. Not like there's like a requirement, but sort of like a, you know, there are times that kind of a, it's a little fitting. It maybe makes a little bit more, more sense. So there are times that are fitting. There's also kind of times you just like feel like showing physically that you belong to God and that you're like, you know, receiving the grace of God um, uh, is another, another instance. Does that help? Yeah. Yeah, Henny. Yeah, I think the typical sort of perspective, and I don't know if there's a canon or a specific rule about this sort of thing, is that a baptism in water in the name of the divine Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is a baptism. Like that, that, that's it. You don't have to be rebaptized. You know, if you were immersed, you don't need to be sprinkled. If you were sprinkled, you don't need to be immersed, whatever. Like that, that happened. And, 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 uh, and, and whether that happened in an Anglican church or a Catholic church or a non denominational like wherever it happened, if it was done with water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that was a baptism. And what I would tend to say pa- uh, pastorally is like, Let's just think about that together. Let's let's like meditate on that together. Can you can you appropriate that? Can you can you see that God did something in your life, even if you weren't even kind of into it? You know, maybe you, your parents just you know whatever were, were like nominally religious, and they, just, they got you baptized as a baby because that's what you did, and then they, you weren't raised as a Christian or whatever, and like you never had any sort of like thought about that, and then you became a Christian. And you were like, yeah, this. Is, I I would still say like, no, I think you can still look back at that and say there was some kind of divine grace happening there. There was some kind of way in which God was coming to you in mercy and in love and in help. And you can like, you can own that. You can, you can appropriate that. I think confirmation then can also then serve as a way of accentuating your own experience of that baptism that might have seemed a bit disconnected. And if we look at the confirmation service, there is some well, we do a renewal of our baptismal vows in there as well, which is what we do when we say the Apostles' Creed. So there's a sense in which you are can kind of reappropriate that fresh and anew, and then the confirmation can serve as that moment of like of, of recognizing and not say valid, validating, but something like for you yourself, kind of like embracing that baptism that occurred previously. Yeah, Mark. Uh, okay, so Jesus for Okay, great. Said contra. Uh, <laughs> um, so uh, yeah, my my. So here's my view on that. Um, you asked a systematic theologian, so I, I think about these, these 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 kinds of things, right? So Calvin has this. So Calvin, John Calvin, you know, has this great little section in the Institutes where he's you know, he's arguing against the, the 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 Baptists who are kind of making this exact same point. It's like, well, you can't have faith if you're like a baby, or whatever. And he basically makes the argument that says you don't know they don't have faith. That is, we've got to have a little bit more of a stance of epistemic humility when it comes to understanding both what faith is and who can exercise faith. So if faith is merely something like an openness to God, like, you know, strip it down to all these various sort of like 
uh, accoutrements that we kind of add up on there, cognitive, rational ability, or what have you, you know, the ability to like, you know, uh, uh, recite the Nicene Creed or understand what hypothesis means or what, whatnot. That's a very kind of rational sort of thing. But I don't know if that's actually what we see when we see faith being exemplified, especially if we see these archetypes of like Mary and, I mean, who knows what Mary was actually thinking, right, when the angel was appearing to her or when Moses was actually seeing a burning bush. But what do they exemplify if they're heroes of the faith? And Hebrews, you know, talks about the whole heroes of the faith and a number of these, not Mary, but other folks get in there. Um, but an openness to God, an openness to receive from God. And Calvin's kind of point in there is, we don't know infants don't have that kind of openness. Is there a sense in which they can even just in their, in, in their infant sort of way, an age appropriate kind of a way, even if that age is like you know, six or seven days or eight days or what have you, be open to the presence of God. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stance of humility. So he's not saying they do. He's saying we don't know that they don't which is a little bit of a, a, a lower bar to, um, uh, to cross. And what I think that does for, for me, too, is it helps uh, me to think about um, that these, the, the sacraments are not dependent on any kind of specific ability that we have. You know, whether that's uh, an ability we lack due to our age or due to some kind of physical impediment. You know, we don't have to require someone who's not smart, let's say, you know, to be able to like, you know, articulate the mysteries of the Trinity before we can say, oh yeah, now you have faith. There's a certain like appropriate level of like cognitive, abel uh, 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 cognitive ability, which may be relatively very, very minimal even. And yet that would be sufficient for receiving these things. So that's kind of my, my line, is my, my perspective there, that we don't know they don't have faith. The other sort of like angle argument that Calvin makes is on that same point there is like, well, you know, they're not able to exercise any kind of faith. So the covenant community stands in as being able to say, you know, articulate the faith for them. And hence, we articulate the Apostles' Creed and we baptize infants as well. And then they will need to themselves eventually when they get to the cognitive ability to be able to do so to then express their own affirmation of what they were prom what was promised for them on their on their behalf. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, cool. Yeah, but it's tricky, though. All right, let me move on to the Lord's Supper, then, um, which, I mean, we could be here all afternoon. If we're I mean, the Lord's Supper was the topic of my PhD dissertation, so, like, <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can talk about this all, all day long, um, but we won't. So, I, so Jennifer linked out in the E! News a little essay that I wrote for Christianity Today, which kind of, like, mapped out these various views. If you, if you hadn't seen that... I don't want to plug my own work, but it was just kind of like I just wrote it, and it was kind of a nice little, you know, less than 2,000-word introduction to, like, you know, Eucharistic theology across various denominations. So I was trying to, like, kind of map, so to speak, like, oh, here's where Orthodox and Roman Catholic and Lutheran and Anglican and Presbyterian and Zwinglian and what have you uh, kind of go there. Um, uh, because what's uh, kind of unique maybe about Anglicanism is that we've we've tended to be a bit more thin on our specific metaphysical discussions of the Lord's Supper than you might see in some of these other uh, traditions. And so you can, there, there, I tend to say there is no uh, one Anglican view on the Lord's Supper, but there are a number of views that are sort of like within the boundaries of broadly Anglican theology. So, um, so wait, let me, I'm, I'm, I'm straying from the catechism a little bit here and I wanna try to make sure I stick on that, so. Um, What's the outward and visible sign? Talk, thinking about that motif there. The visible sign is bread and wine, which Christ commands us to receive. What's the inward gift signified? The inward gift signified is the body and blood of Christ, which are truly taken and received in the Lord's Supper by faith. Okay, again, following that, that, that mapping there, outward and visible sign, bread and wine, inward and spiritual grace, inward and spiritual reality is the body and blood of Christ. Now you might say, how does that work? Well, I've got 300 pages of stuff to tell you uh, how that works. But there's a range of views on how that works that have come up in the, in the Christian tradition. And just briefly sketching here on, on one side of things, we'll have those, uh, those viewpoints that say, you know, when, when the priest says this is the body of Christ, the priest means that literally, like it's the body of Christ. And then on the other sort of side of things, you might have those that when the priest says this is the body of Christ, the priest means 
this is the body of Christ, like scare quotes, or this is like the body of Christ, sort of like an implicit uh, simile, is that the word there? Um, or, or it's sort of like a, a, a word picture or what have you. Or like my professor once said on, on this sort of side of things, the bread and the wine, or grape juice probably, um, that serves as flashcards for Jesus. You know, flashcards, it's like when you're, when you're working with kids, like, you know, picture of a ball, ball, you know? It's like, bread, remember Jesus, you know? Wine, remember Jesus, like the flashcards for, for Jesus there. So, that, so that's kind of the, the, the divide, you might say, about is, is this like literal? Is this like, you know, a kind of a one-to-one a -one correspondence here? Or is it some kind of like metaphor or, or what have you? Now you're going to find Anglicans on both sides of that kind of like grand divide right there and different ways of understanding how it is that that sentence that, you know, one says there, this is the body of Christ, uh, comes out as, as true. Um, for the sake of time, I'll just sketch my own view. Um, so um, what I tend to think of what I kind of ended the, uh, the essay with is I, I like to think of the way in which the Lord's Supper and the things we talk about, the bread and the wine, are very similar to how we talk about the incarnation. And again, think about this motif that I was saying earlier, the ways in which God comes to us. I mean, the incarnation is, in my view, the most profound way that God comes to us. God comes to us as one of us. And we confess in the Nicene Creed every week that Jesus Christ is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, right? So completely and fully divine. When we point at Jesus, we can say, that's God. But at the same time, for us and for our salvation, he became a human being, born of the Virgin Mary and conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he's just like us. So we can also point to Jesus and say, that's a human being, now, that's kind of weird. We don't really have many things where we can talk about, you know, that is two things. We're really talking about, like, the essence, the, what it is, okay? So Jesus is oddly two what's and one who, one person with, with two natures. And I think well, that's kind of similar to how we sometimes talk about the Lord's Supper, and especially look at church history. The incarnation is used often as a way of thinking about this mysterious relationship between these mundane objects of bread and wine and the body and blood of Christ. So I say, well, then maybe similarly we can say of that object there on the altar that you have in your hands, that is a piece of bread. Clearly it's an you know, it looks like it, tastes like it, etc., but also at the same time, that is the body of Christ. Likewise for the, 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 the what's in the cup? What's in the cup? It's blood and it's also wine. It's two things joined together in some sort of mysterious union, a sacramental union that parallels what we call the hypostatic union, which is the, the union between the two natures, the, the two what's of Christ in the one, in the one person. And so what that also does, for me at least, is it kind of like ties the Lord's Supper to the Incarnation. This is almost kind of like an outflow of, or an extension of, or a continuation of the Incarnation. When we talk about the Incarnation, we talk about uh, Christ being Emmanuel, God with us. And I think God continues to be with us. He continues to be with us in lots of different ways. Again, God comes to us very generously. But he is with us in a very real, very profound, very tangible sense in the bread and the wine that we receive on a weekly basis. There was a line in here, I think, as well, that um, mirrored that. Uh, back on in the, in the 300 article, so page 783 of the Lord's Supper. thinking about how to map that sort of like middle way, you might say, between various extremes. Just mentioned here uh, in the middle of the page there, transubstantiation, that's the Roman Catholic view, the official Roman Catholic view, or the change of the substance of bread and wine to the Supper of the Lord. Um, well, it gets a little bit 16th century, you know, insults, not quite insults, but here. Can't be proved by holy writ and is repugnant to the plain words of scripture. I don't think I've ever written repugnant of someone else's view. That's a little, maybe a little bit extreme there, but. Um, so the Roman Catholic view is sort of out of bounds, and I think we might see on this sort of like flashcards for Jesus sort of room is a bit out of bounds as well when it comes to thinking about how we participate in the, um, in the liturgical life of the church. And so finding views here in the middle are what I think uh, we're kind of invited to do when it comes to thinking about the Lord's Supper. Okay, that maybe is a little bit backwards, but... Um, 
Questions on that before I kind of rapid fire hit through the other five? Yeah, please. Where's the blessing? I mean, well, I mean, how does that factor into the present? Yeah, right. Good, good. So, um, so my first thought is that you know God doesn't need us to do anything for Him to show up. God can show up whenever God wants to. So, uh, I think it's possible that you know God could turn you know the coffee in the back into the blood of Christ. If, you know, that's not outside the divine power to do that. Again, we have no reason to think he would do that. We have reason to believe that God actually would take bread and wine and change those or add those or combine those to be part of the body and blood of Christ. And so what we do here in the liturgy is we try to, um, to mirror or parallel or enact a, a biblical form that we see, a sort of shape that we have with Christ at the Last Supper of taking uh, the, 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 what's the structure? It's take, bless, break, give. So we see Christ take bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to the, the disciples. Our liturgical enactment mirrors that or, or parallels that. We're going to do an, an, an instructed Eucharist in a few weeks after Easter, later on in April, where uh, Deacon Mary has written some things up, kind of like kind of show some of these like parallels between the biblical structure and what we do um, up here around the altar, which might uh, you know help that to, to highlight there. So, so uh, what is that to say? The liturgy serves us. I think the liturgy serves us in helping us to have confidence that God is showing up in this moment here. But we don't control God until God, okay, now you gotta show up, you know, like, God's not a genie that if I just say the magic words or something like that, he's going to show up. But I do think that in following the, the structure here, God wants to show up. He wants to be a part of this and that we are kind of giving God the context to do what God already wants to do in a way that helps us to have the faith that that's actually happening. Does that get at your answer there? So it's symbolic. What's is it, the... the, bread and the is it symbolic? What do you mean by symbolic? Yeah. Yeah. But is that really it? Or, I mean, if you can have bread and wine together as you gather, mm -hmm. and it wasn't blessed or consecrated, mm -hmm. it still might be a valid communion. Well, I wouldn't say it'd be a valid communion, but I would say, you know, it's one of those things where. Um, it's, a, it's a tension between giving God the freedom to do whatever God wants to do, to show up however and whenever God wants to, and trying to do that in a way that gives us confidence that God is going to show up. So, like, there's all manner of things I could do that maybe, you know, might latch into God somehow, you know what I mean? Like, maybe I think, oh, I don't know, spinning in ten circles and, like, you know, whatever, having a pizza is, like, going to get me God's presence. Like, Maybe, like, I don't know, God can show up in a burning bush, right? Or God can, like, talk from a donkey. That's the angel sort of thing. Like, God can just, like, show up. In, but we don't have any, like, sort of, like, indication that, that that is, like, kind of a reliable way of meeting with God and having God's presence. Whereas what we do have is we have these biblical patterns that do show us, like, reliable ways of where God is going to show up, where God is going to make his presence known. So temple worship is that kind of like the, the parallel there, too. You know, God was not, like, literally limited by the Ark of the Covenant or the Holy of Holies. God can show up in a random burning bush out on the Sinai Desert, right? That's, but what does he do? He sort of sets a pattern and says, like, here's a reliable way by participating in a relationship with me. And I, he even says in, in I don't know, Exodus 23, like, I will be there with you. I will speak to you from the mercy seat above the Ark of the Covenant. Not because God had to, but because that's helpful for us. So similar to I think what we do here is a way that is like trying to fit this pattern of where God has said, you know, reliably, he's going to like show up and meet with us and, and be present. Not to say he couldn't do that somewhere else, but I have more confidence, I might say, that God's going to show up in these places where we have seen clear biblical patterns and theological rationale for these kinds of places than just, than just randomly. So I guess I wouldn't say it's uh, like symbolic in a purely like sim in, a, in, a, in a simple sense. It is symbolic, though. It, it, it's, it's very symbolic. It's, it's heavily symbolic. 
just as the temple, the Holy of Holies, and the Holy Place were also symbolic, but they were also real, too, real places. Little body. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Good. That, that's a great observation there. And so there's a, maybe I would make a little bit of a distinction between um, like the metaphysics of Christ's presence and how that happens. So those are two different. Those are two different things. Uh, you know, you could, you could, you could be like I don't know. You could be a Baptist who thought that Christ showed up in this transubstantial kind of way. That'd be a weird Baptist. But like, there's, there's just to say, there's a difference there between one's like ecclesiology, like one how one understands the church and the ministry of like the priesthood, and how one understands what's going on like with this actual object here, whether it's being transformed or not. So the Roman Catholic view on that uh, in that regard would. Uh, the theological issue there more would be by what authority do these things happen? Who can do this sort of like change? Not does the change happen, but who can do the change? And there, you know, it, it's, got, it's got to be a priest duly ordained, you know, in line with the Bishop of Rome and, and, and what have you, um, in order for it to be valid in, in that sense. You know, I, I had a more little mediating view where, where I tend to think that it's, not, uh, I don't, I, I don't want to limit God, you know. I, 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 God can show up wherever it is that God can show up. I do think that some of these structures that we have in the Christian tradition, that is like ordination and liturgical forms and what, help, what not, help us to be confident that this is a time when God is going to show up, when God is going to do something spiritually significant. Not like some kind of guarantee, like we're, like God has to respond to us, but I think God in his desire to come to us, wants to use these sorts of reliable indicators to do what it is that God wants to do with us. So that's where I would kind of, you know, so think about the, the Via Medea here, right? So here you have to have a priest under the Bishop of Rome to do the Lord's Supper. Maybe over here it's like any Christian can just grab some bread and be like, it's the body of Christ. Like, well, it's, what's, what's maybe in the middle here? It's like God can show up wherever he wants to, and yet... I'm not always confident that it's just happening like wherever in, in whenever situation. Rather, my confidence and therefore my, my faith is increased by having some of the structures, the traditional structures in place that follow a biblical pattern that then you know, help me to think, yeah, I'm pretty sure this is the place that God is going to be showing up. I'm more confident God's going to show up for me here on Sunday morning than if I stayed in bed and like, had you know, an English muffin or something like that. But again, not that God couldn't just show up there in the English muffin. Like, I, I, freedom to do that sort of thing. But it seems riskier to me to look for God in English muffins than to look for God in the church, in the worshiping community, in a sacramental participate, in a sacramental rite that has a biblical shape to it. Does that? Yeah. The middle's always hard to articulate. So that's that, that's our task there. Uh, you'll go right here, and then Mark. Mm. Mm. That's nice, yeah. Great, thanks. Yeah, cool. I like that. Yeah, thank you. Mark? Yeah, that's not in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, 
Well, and again, think about where the action is, right? If it's just kind of in your head, right? If it's just kind of like, you know, in, in your mind, then like, well, whatever kind of can be a reminder, I maybe could, could do that sort of thing. I still think there might be better reminders than other sorts of things. But, um, but we're, we're not just coming to here to be reminded. We're coming here to, res- to, to be confronted with God. We, we think God is, at least I think, God is like showing up in some kind of like significant way. And that's hitting me cognitively. It's hitting me affectively. It's hitting me even physically as I take the, the bread and, uh, and the wine. And so it's not just something that like I am doing. I'm kind of like trusting that I, that we all are doing something that God is here participating with and joining together with us. As we, uh, as we participate in this sacrament and the other sacraments as well. I thought this might happen. I only got through, only got through two. Being very Protestant here, unfortunately, <laughs> in our inability to get through all of the, all of the sacraments. Um, but it, I do want to be sense of the time because there's 12.20 uh, here. So maybe I'll, find, maybe I'll write something up here on the other sacraments and I can send you out. That's a good p- teacher thing to do, right? It's like, oh, I'll send you the slides later on. Like, we didn't have time in class. <laughs> anyway, let me just pray for us as we wrap up here and as the kids start coming up. Heavenly Father, we're, we're so grateful for the, the, the many ways that you come to us. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for your creation. We're grateful for the incarnation of your son. And we're grateful for these, these means, these mysteries by which you come to us, in which your grace, your generosity, your love, your mercy, and your help uh, come to us in ways that enable us to love you, to love one another, and to serve you. Bless us now, we pray, as we go out from here to our various activities this afternoon and this week. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.